Well, we have a happy day going on here, Follower, followers of Jesus in, in ba the baptismal pool. That's a great way to uh, segue out of our Sunday school hour and into our corporate worship hour. If you missed this morning our Sunday school hour, there is a class for you and for everybody in your family. And gifted teachers have spent a lot of time uh, preparing that lesson, and we hope you'll be a part of that. So let's get back into this uh, routine of being together at 9.30 on Sunday morning. It's, it's a really important part of the, of the, uh, of the uh, following Jesus and helping other people follow Jesus. And it will help you understand the Bible and the characters in the Bible and the doctors of the Bible, and uh, super important. So 9.30, make that a part of your routine. We'd really love to have you. We have, we have special guests here today that I, I can't overlook. Our daughter Holly from Oregon on the West Coast is here with us, and uh, her son Aiden Redemption is here. We talk about Aiden every once in a while, don't we? This is Aiden Redemption, and Bella Aline went downstairs Aiden Redemption has been looking forward to visiting Grandma and Grandpa on Bittersweet Farm for a long time. And uh, the other day, I got a video that Aiden Redemption had made for Grandma and for me. And on the, there was a photograph and, and a video. And on the video, Aiden had, had gone back to his room and he was working quietly in his room, and his mom didn't know what he was doing. And she was a little bit concerned about, what is he doing back there quietly in his room all that time? Maybe I'll go back. This is how I heard the story. I'll go back and check out what he's doing. Aiden was building a, he's very organized, um, and he was building a countdown calendar. How many days until we go to Bittersweet Farm? And... Uh, the day has come, and Aiden Redemption is in the house. And he brought his sister and his mother to be with us for a few days. And we're excited about that. And I managed to torque that story into an illustration for my sermon, because this is the first time I've ever done this. Um, amazingly, God sends Gabriel to Daniel with a countdown timer for the people of God who are experiencing unspeakable evil and darkness. I don't know how it is with you, but sometimes I just, I just feel crushed with evil. And I see things that are happening in our world, and, and I see the evil that's happening in our world, and, I, and it's crushing and discouraging and disappointing. And I think our children have to grow up in this world. And it would be easy to be overwhelmed. But we have in our laps today, a book that was written by men through God, the very Word of God, and amazingly, a third of this book, a third of this book when it was written was predictive prophecy. A third of the book said things that were going to happen in the future that no one could have known would happen but God. And one of the most remarkable predictive prophecies in the Bible, which has partly been fulfilled and partly has yet, is yet to be fulfilled, are the four verses that are our text today. When we pray, I've noticed that sometimes God denies our request for our own good. How many of you have that experience? You pray, it just seems like God says no. Sometimes God delays our request 
And that's for our own good. And right now, we're not sure we agree about that, but one day we will all agree that God's timing was perfect. Sometimes when we pray, he denies our request. Sometimes when we, we pray, he delays our request. Sometimes, have you had this happen? Sometimes he grants our desire. Don't you love it when that happens? Sometimes he just does what you ask for and he gives you your desire. But according to God's word, here's, here's an exciting part. Sometimes there are times like this in this text where God answers Daniel's prayer and he gives, them, he gives Daniel much more than he even could have imagined. And I want to encourage you, sometimes you're going to pray and you're going to feel like the heavens are brass, they're silent, there's no answer. And sometimes you're going to pray and it's going to seem like a definite no. And sometimes you're going to pray and it will happen, but it won't happen yet and it'll require patience. And sometimes God will give you what you ask for, but sometimes God will give you more than you could ever have imagined. And that's what he did for Daniel here. For instance, I, I had this happen in my life. I, in, in, Holly, you were married in September 14. And do you remember this, Hope? You went with mom and I on our, our anniversary trip. Because when you're the baby of the family, you get to go on the anniversary trip. And so that's what happened. After Holly got married, we, were, we, were, uh, we went on an anniversary trip. I was driving my red Jeep, and I was on a back road in Holmes County, Ohio, very beautiful, the Amish country of Ohio. And I was driving my Jeep. Lois was at a shop somewhere. I dropped her off, said, I'll be back in three or four hours. Uh, she said, take your time. Leave your wallet. Take your time. And, uh, and she, uh, and she uh, maybe you had your own money. Yeah. Anyway, we, uh, I was driving the back roads, and I was driving my little red Jeep along a beautiful country road, and I saw a little white house, and I thought to myself, how sweet would it be if one day when I get like 99, and I can't be a pastor anymore, I retire, and I find a little white house on a country road somewhere where I could just like take a walk. And I said to the Lord, hey, Lord, I love you, and if it would be your will after I am 90, I would like a little white house on a country road. And God answered my prayer real quickly. <laughs> and he said, you don't have to retire yet. So here I am till I'm 99 years old. And I live, oh, in case you don't know, I live in a little, don't we lost, we live in a little white house on a country road. Because sometimes God gives you more than you asked for and sooner than you thought. And he is good. And if you get confused about all the other stuff I'm going to tell you today, and you probably will, just remember what I said. You've been to church. God loves you, and sometimes he'll give you more than you can possibly ask or think. That's what it says in Ephesians 3 and 20 and other places. Now unto him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And the, ne the next verse says, glory in the church throughout all generations. That means our children and their children David, I love it. what you said. Where did David go? He's back. I love what you said. My grandparents went here. My parents, I go here. My daughter, how sweet is that? A heritage of godliness and faith in the Lord. So in today's text, we have a detailed, wonderfully detailed answer to a prayer, which goes way beyond what Daniel was praying about. He's praying about the end of the Babylonian captivity, which is 70 years in length, and it was reaching an end. 
And the answer goes full into the future of God's people. It goes all the way to the end of evil itself. Can you imagine? All the way to the end of evil itself, of injustice itself. It goes all the way to the end of, of human time and into God's eternity. The answer is an amazing answer. And the prophecy is given by the angel Gabriel to Daniel and it's divided in only four verses today. We have food waiting for us. So only four verses today. Um, and we'll deal with them today in four logical chunks, uh, chronological chunks, if you will, four verses, four chunks to understand this amazing and far-reaching prophecy. And here are, the, here are the four movements or the four chunks. Are you ready? Um, notes online, BethelJackson.org. The full notes are there. If, you, if I lose you, you can always go back and find your, your way. Here are the four chunks, though. Verse 1, ver, uh, verse, the first verse is verse 24. Let's read it again. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both the vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. If you're like I am, you're thinking, that sounds really wonderful, but what does that mean? Let's, let's establish this. I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to vote. And you're going to tell me, is this good or is this bad? Does this sound like good or bad? Let's read it again, and I'm gonna, at the end, we're going to ask you to decide if it's good or bad. Does this sound good or does it sound bad? Seventy weeks are determined, decreed, about your people and your holy place to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, and seal the vision and the prophets, and anoint the most holy place. Now, if you're guessing, would you guess that's bad? Or would you say, no, that, that, that sounds good. How many of you say, that sounds good? You're right. That's good. That's like very good. Whatever it is, that's good. I mean, if he's going to bring an end to sin and an end to transgression and bring everlasting righteousness, it just sounds really good to me. I'm not sure what this is, but it sounds good. What we have here in verse 24 is an overview of a, of a, a time, a period of time that the angel Gabriel tells Daniel is 77s, actually, 77s. And, and what we're going to show you is that da Gabriel's answering Daniel's prayer by saying there, you can look forward to about a 500-year history here in this prophecy covers uh, 500 years. And you're going to see it's actually more, but that's verse 24. So verse 24 is going to be an overview. And let's just say, we don't know a lot about it, but we know it's a good thing. Something good is happening in an overview where Gabriel is answering Daniel's prayer, which is like, so God, what about your people and your city, Jerusalem? You know, we've been gone for a long time. What about Jerusalem? What about your people? He says, I have good things, and it's going to require patience. This we know. Okay, so that's verse 24. Verse 25 describes 69 of those seven weeks, and, and, and most Bible scholars believe they're weeks of years, weeks of years, which is the same the same kind of calculation is done other parts of, of the Bible for the Sabbath. He's just talking about the length of Sabbath and calling years weeks. And verse 25 describes 69 weeks of years or 483 years. 
from the decree to rebuild until Jesus' presentation. This is what it says in verse 25. And I'll describe this in a minute, but I'm just giving you an overview now. Know therefore and understand that from the beginning of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, that's a Messiah word, an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat in, in a troubled time. And, and we believe that verse 24 is an overview describing the whole 70 weeks of years. Um, verse 25 describes 69 of those weeks. Verse 26 describes uh, a time that we'll call the time of the Gentiles, which includes what we call the church age. Listen to verse 20, and I'll, descri- I'll explain this in a minute, but I'm just giving you an overview so you kind of understand the structure here. Verse 26, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one will be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, I'm going to describe why I believe this is describing a time, the time of the Gentiles, and it's actually a gap of time because, and I'll explain it in a minute again, but because the last of these weeks of years is described in a number of places in the Bible as in the end time. A big chunk of Revelation is given to describing these last seven years. And other places in the Bible have other names for them. There has to be a part of this that happens in the ultimate end and hasn't happened yet. But a part of this has already happened. So there's a gap, and, I'll, and I will explain that too. Now, the fourth chunk. So chunk number one is an overview, and that's verse 24. And the second movement is in verse 25. That describes 69 of the 70 weeks. Then the third chunk is in verse 26, and that describes the gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. Stay with me. Stay with me. You'll be rewarded. Um, And then the last, verse 27, describes the the last week of years. So let's jump, jump into these four movements, and I'll explain why this is thought-provoking, important, sobering, and ultimately very encouraging for God's people. And, and, and I will say this. Lois and I went out to, we, to eat the other night, and we went to a restaurant by the lake, and we looked at the menu, and we looked at all the entrees on the menu, and we decided that we liked the appetizer best. So I ordered an entree, and she ordered the appetizer, and then, like I always do, I helped her finish her food. <laughs> That's why I'm twice as big as her. Um, we decided to go back to the restaurant because the appetizer was so good and just order the appetizer. It was chicken, bacon, quesadilla with extra sour cream. And so we just went back and we ordered the appetizer. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what does that have to do with a 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel? I will explain this to you. And that is, don't get frustrated here. Just imagine that you're getting a taste of Bible prophecy. You're getting a taste of one understanding of this passage of Scripture. Christians have had different various understandings, but at the end, we're all going to agree that the big idea was plain to the original reader, and it's plain to us. The main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. And when we get to the end of this, it will put, us, it'll, it'll put some energy in your heart for God to realize that God has given us this. And so we, we want to look at verse 24. God has a plan for history that includes the Jews and the Gentiles. And you see that here, especially talking about the Jews here, because whose city? He says, your people and your city. That's Israel, the Jewish people, and it's 
your city is, I know you're thinking, you're thinking Jackson, but that would be wrong. Your city would be Jerusalem. Yes. He's talking about Jerusalem. This is a big deal because they're not in Jerusalem, but they long for Jerusalem. They had the temple there. They had the worship there. That's where they grew up. This was their great, this is great, but they, they weren't there. They were exiled from this in their youth. And they prayed. When they prayed, they prayed toward Jerusalem, didn't they? And they longed for it. So this is, a, this is answering their heart prayer. When, God, are we going to have peace? And when are you going to keep your promises? And when are your people going to be delivered from this torture, this terrible captivity that we're in? And we very much like our own lives. What is it you're longing for? God says, I, I have a future for you, and it's bright, it's good, but it's going to require faithfulness and patience on your part. And so then he gives these prophecies for Israel. And if you were counting, there are six of them. And what's interesting, and the first three have to do with sin. And the second three also have to do with sin, but they have to do with a future for Israel. So the, and it, particularly the first three prophecies he's giving for the Jewish people, Daniel's people, and the city is how he's going to eventually deal with sin. He's going to deal with the sin that's against them and he's going to deal with the sin that's around them, and he's going to deal with the sin that is within them that they committed. And who in the house doesn't agree that we still need somebody to help us with the sin that's around us, and the sin that's against us, and the sin that indwells us, the sin that's within us. We still need that, so we're listening. We're tuned in. Here's what the, the prophecy says. There's six different things. Listen for them. Three in the first chunk, three in the second chunk, if you will, and here's how, how it sounds. One, finish the transgression. In this, this is restraining Israel's long history of rebellion and sin. Uh, put an end to sin or, or judge sin with finality. That would be a good day. Atone for iniquity. And in this case, it's going to be to furnish the Messiah to atone fully for willful sin. These three promises to Israel are given there in, in verse uh, 24. Uh, and they're these, the, the negative ones that have to do with sin. Then three more uh, concerning Israel's future. They're positive, desirable things. They're to bring in everlasting righteousness. That would be good. To seal the vision of prophet, to bring these things to an end, the visions, the prophecies, now they're coming to an end. And then to anoint a most holy place. And repeatedly in the Bible, Jesus and his Bible writers, gospel writers, and epistle writers refer to a future Israel and refer to a future temple. This is interesting. Now, the short version is this. God, good things are coming, but they're going to take a while. And this would be a good word for you. Listen to me what I'm telling you right now. You're a Jesus follower. Good things are coming. You want, when do you want that to happen? Right now. When does God promise it's going to happen? Well, maybe it's going to require patience. It's going to require hope. It's setting your confidence in God. So, so hear me this. This is what he's saying. Daniel, I want you to know that the good that's coming is going to be greater than you thought. And it's going to take a lot longer than you thought. And I just give you that word right now as a pastor. Maybe you're about to turn the corner in your life if something good is going to explode in your life. And since I'm not Joel Olstein, I can't promise you that. I mean... I like him. He's a nice guy. He's handsome and whatnot, and he has a really big church and helicopter fly. Anyway, but, but I can't promise you that. We, we wouldn't see that exactly the same way, right? We, we love Jesus. But anyway, 
uh, should have left him out of it. That wasn't, that wasn't fair. That was mean. But good things are coming, but they might take a while. And for Daniel, they definitely were going to take a while. And there will be a time of uh, 70 uh, sevens of years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And there are four of them, but there's one in particular, four pieces, but one in particular we're going we're to point out. Until Jesus dies and rises and ascends and returns and the kingdom comes and evil is over and prophecy is done and the whole consummation of the age comes, from this time to that time, there are 77s in there. That's what he's saying. John MacArthur wrote this, and I thought it was helpful. To sum it up, the first three promises are fulfilled in principle at Christ's first coming and in full at his return. The second three complete the plan at his second advent, the end, the finish, the kingdom of Christ. 70 weeks of years, and the kingdom will come. To put it real simply, God is saying to Daniel, you're longing for a kingdom where peace comes and sin is done and evil is conquered and justice reigns and Jesus is on the throne and you're, there's going to be 77s of years, 70 weeks of years before that happens. It's, a, it's almost 500 years. Moody has a commentary on this that I found lucid follow this, by completion of the 490-year period, six objectives would be accomplished in a comprehensive way. These six different things I just read, the six phrases, three negative, three positive. The first three objectives pertain to dealing with sin. Finishing transgression refers to bringing to an end Israel's history of rebellion against God. Making an end of sin brings to a halt by final judgment, and making atonement for iniquity refers to the Messiah's once-for-all death for sin. And all God's people said, amen. amen. And the final three relate to consummating the prophetic events by bringing in the kingdom of everlasting righteousness, fulfilling all vision and prophecy, setting apart the most holy place, literally, the holy of holies, referring to a yet future literal millennial temple that's described in Ezekiel 40 to 48. All six of the purposes will be fulfilled completely for Israel by the time of the return of Messiah and the establishment of the Messianic kingdom. Now, that was probably a lot for you to process, but a good thing to think about is God is just answering the heart cry of Daniel as he's saying, when does this Babylonian captivity end? And, and God says to Gabriel, tell them the whole story. Tell them from here to Messiah comes. He's rejected. He atones for sin. He's going to die, rise again. He's going to return. He's going to establish a kingdom on earth. This is what the Bible teaches. And, and he's, he, he's at least enigmatically, mysteriously pointing to all that to Daniel. So this is a good time to remember some things. It's kind of like you've heard this already, not yet. Chunks of this have already happened. But parts of it are not fulfilled yet. And this is why I, I understand these passages this way, because there are things that are promised here that we can see that have already happened, and in particular in Israel in the life of Christ. But there are things that we long to have to see happen, and they haven't happened yet. Making an end of sin, bring all iniquity to cease, bring the kingdom. No, that hasn't happened yet. So this is a good time to remember that we want immediate relief. Lord, end the captivity right now. Um, his concern is ultimate rule. He says, I want you to focus on an eternal kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. In his righteousness. And I would tell you the same thing, dear congregation. And that is, there are things you want, and they're not unimportant, and God cares about them. But, but one must concentrate 
on what God wants because someday you will want what God wants. And so we want what we want from God, but we need to learn to want what he wants. And the scriptures teach us that when we focus on wanting what God wants, we orient our desires and our passion, find out what is God's desire, what does he love, that, that good flows into our life. Now the second chunk, that's the overview of the 70 weeks. The second describes 69 uh, weeks. Um, uh, uh, not 70, but 69 of the weeks. And it does it in a couple of chunks, which are interesting. The first phase of the rebuilding takes seven years. And so it's set aside within that 69 weeks. And then the rest is, that make up the 79 years total, weeks of years total, is when Messiah is presented. Now, there was a man who worked in Scotland Yard. His name was Sir Robert Anderson. He wrote a famous book called The Coming Prince, where he actually did the math on this. And recently, another scholar, whose name was Harold Honer, uh, wrote a book called The Chronological Aspects of a Life of Christ, where he kind of tweaked the math on this. And he worked out the math to see um, what, what happens in that length of time. When you take this length of time, and you, and you, you, know, you don't use a a, a Roman solar calendar, but you use a Hebrew lunar calendar, and you work out all the specific details, and you render in the future. And they came very close to landing on the exact same date. The start date for this, if you go from the decree that's given in Nehemiah from Artaxerxes, and you have a threefold uh, witness of history that, that, we, that we know that very day is given in history. It's given in Hebrew scripture, it's given in Greek literature. It's given in, uh, it's, it's, it all, it's also uh, given in Grecian literature and Persian history. And, and it's the exact same date, March 14, 445. And you go forward that 69 weeks using their calculations. You land at the very date that's significant in Israel's history when Jesus presented himself in the triumphal entry as the king. 69 weeks of years for the command to rebuild Jerusalem to when Jesus offers himself in the triumphal entry in fulfillment of this prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Daniel then 9.25 says it this way, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there'll be seven years and then 62 weeks. Again, together, that's 69 weeks of years shall be built again with squares and moat and in a troubled time. And if you read about the rebuilding, the initial rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. In, you can read about that in Nehemiah. There's a time when they were building and battling. They had the sword and the trowel. It was a, trouble, a time of trouble. Then the third chunk is verse 20, 26. So you see what I'm saying so far? The whole prophecy is 70 years. The first movement of that is the first 69 years with a seven-year chunk at the beginning as they're rebuilding the temple. Then 69 years. And Bible scholars that understand it this way, Bible scholars say the actual date works out in terms of the time from that degree to rebuild to the time when Jesus is officially presenting himself as the king of Israel. Then you want to ask yourself, then what happened? Because that's significant in the next verse. Now this describes a time, verse 26 then, is going to describe a chunk of time in between, of indeterminate amount of time, a length of time. And, and it's where the plot really thickens. There'll be a, 
a Gentile gap, a time when the, the, the history of the world kind of moves away from the focus on the Jewish nation and the people of Israel and on the Gentile world. Sometimes we call this the time of the Gentiles. The scriptures call this the time of the Gentiles. And when the time of the Gentiles comes in, so there's, it's almost like one teacher of prophetic literature, Talbot, said he was lived years ago and rode a train, and he said sometimes he would be on a train, and they would sidetrack the train so that the express train could go by. And while they were sitting on the sidetrack, the express train would go by. So Israel is going to have its king presented to them, and you're going to see that they reject him, and God puts them on the sidetrack, and then you have the time of the Gentiles, which is also includes the church age. This is the age that we live in. And it emphasis on the Gentiles coming in. You can read about this throughout Scripture. And in particular, you can see it in, as a future thing in the, in the book of Romans, verses, uh, chapters 9 uh, through 11. But that's the time that we are in. And so then, there will be a Gentile church gap of indeterminate length after the rejection of Jesus, his crucifixion, the fall of Jerusalem. And then the time of the Gentiles comes in and includes the church age. Now, the question that you might have is, why is this more explicit then? Why don't the Old Testament prophets make this really clear? Here's the time of the Gentiles. Here's the church. Here's, say, the rapture of the church. Why don't they, why don't they do that? Because they don't. And even Jesus, when he's teaching to a primarily Jewish audience and the Olivet Discourse, is emphasizing the, the nation of Israel. And, and why is that? And, and that would be described this way. We were driving through the mountains of Kentucky a few years ago, and it was a beautiful night, and there was a full moon, and we're driving, you know, in the mountains, you, you rise and you fall with the mountains, and in the, in the sky, this beautiful silver moon was sometimes high in the dome of heaven, and sometimes it rested in the branches of the trees. And sometimes it looked really large and close, and sometimes it looked far away. And that is because this, that when you see things at a distance, they can appear very close. Sometimes Bible teachers have used this helpful illustration. They call it the mountain peaks of prophecy. When Old Testament prophets looked into the future, they would often refer to the first advent or the first coming of Christ, Christmas, and the second coming of Christ as if they were right together. Like the mountain peaks look like they're right together, but when you get close to them, there can be a whole valley and a whole city or length of time between the, the initial mountain peak and the other one. Now, let me give you examples of this in the Bible because I'm just not making this up. Listen, let me give you a, a, a couple of examples. Um, one from Isaiah 9, 6, and you're going to be hearing a prophecy of an Old Testament prophet. He's going to be talking about the first advent of Christ, and then he's just going to segue to the second advent of Christ without implying there's any time between, but we know the first advent of Christ has happened, and the second advent of Christ has not happened yet right? Here's the, here's the passage. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, when we say unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, that sounds like Christmas. When we say the government will be upon his shoulder, that sounds like the millennial kingdom. Um, and it will, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So you have the first advent and the second advent referred to almost as if they're right together, but we know they're separated by a long period of time. Here's a second example from Zechariah 9.9. I read part of this already. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be cut off. 
and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So is Jesus' literal rule from sea to sea today, from the river to the ends of the earth? No, it's not. That'd be a time in the millennial kingdom when his peace rules the earth. But the first part of it, already, we know already happened specifically. Jesus presented himself as a king, riding the, colt in, riding the donkey into Jerusalem, and this is what happened in the triumphal entry. The Jews rejected their king, and the time of the Gentiles came in. Listen to the way Jesus acted and the way Jesus talked when he presented himself as king. And they were shouting, Hosanna. And, 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 he, and when he drew near and he saw the city, remember what he did? Loud weeping. He wept over it, saying, Would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side and tear down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you didn't know the time of your visitation. In other words, you hadn't studied Bible prophecy carefully and recognized that I present myself. Let me stop right here and just say, it's real popular in evangelical churches today because we've heard so much sensationalism and so much speculation to be a prophetic agnostic. Like, I'm not sure that I know how Jesus is coming back, when he's coming back. I just believe that he's coming back, but I'm not, I, don't, I don't know and I don't want to know. Okay, then there's, uh, there are other people, they're just sure. They've got a scheme, they've got charts, and they're absolutely positive, and they're ready to tell you anytime. And, 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 they're, and they're usually, you know, giving a date. Can, can I just say this humbly? We want to avoid both of those extremes. Both of those extremes. Don't go from one to the other. Don't say, I don't study Bible prophecy because I've heard people do weird things. And they're always going to do weird things. But, one, but, but wouldn't it be a great idea to have the basic ideas that thoughtful people have in mind when they study so that as we get closer to that mountain peak, we will recognize it. That's what I believe. And that's why we teach on these things to be helpful to you so that you will recognize things that are happening when they happen. So the anointed one Messiah is cut off. The people of the prince who is to come, that's the prince uh, who is to come, will, des will destroy a city and, and sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. The end will be war and desolations decreed. And so what, what you have is what's describing what's going to happen in, inside that, that, um, the, the, that last 70th week. Now, going to verse 27, the final description of the 70th week. Here are three things that convince me that this 70th week is separate and yet future. One, the rest of the Bible mentions a final time of seven years. And it mentions it in ways that are unmistakable. It'll mention it by how many days. It'll mention it by how many months. It'll mention it by chunks of two. It's almost like, I want this to be unmistakable. This is a time of seven years in the future. A big chunk of Revelation, six to 19 is given to describe this. And so I believe that because of the rest of the Bible, it lines up with the rest of the Bible. And there's an addendum I put in, in the notes online that you can look at and you can see a number of places in the Bible that do that. The second thing that, that convinces me that this final week is separate is the things described clearly haven't happened yet. So may have begun, but they definitely haven't happened yet. They're future. Uh, the description of the tribulation. Some people think 
Well, like, like a preterist view would be all these things that happened in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But when you study what happened in AD 70 and you compare it to what's described in that huge chunk in Genesis, or, uh, Revelation 6 through 19, then it, it, the, what's described in Revelation 6 through 19 clearly hasn't happened in history yet. And it's not adequate to say it happened in, in AD 70. So in other words, this 70th week of Daniel, 70 weeks are here, but one of them is, is future and yet future to us. And the third reason I believe that is it makes sense when you take all the passages and you study them together. And next week we move to Daniel chapter 10, and we're going to see a dark evil, a dark work, and a dark evil figure behind it. But we want to remember that the Scriptures teach us that evil is here, and, and they give us an answer about the end of evil, and they exhort us to be patient. So the Scriptures, has a, to understand biblical prophecy, you want to make a clear distinction between the church and Israel. You want to ask yourself, who are we talking to here? Who's it talking to? And that's what verse 27 says. He makes a strong covenant with many from one week, and for half the week he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. For half the week he'll still put an end to sacrifice and offering on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. And we'll describe this in the future, in future teachings, but this is simply the, the, the one, so the, the, the one who comes is referred to many different places in the Bible and has already been introduced in the book of Daniel is the one we know as the Antichrist, makes a treaty with Israel during this time, breaks it halfway into this time, then the abomination of desolation where he defiles the temple and Jesus himself referred to Daniel's prophecy about that in the Olivet Discourse. And so we know this is going to be happening in the future. This hasn't happened yet. No, you're, you're probably thinking, okay, why, why, is this all, why is all this important to me? Why is this important? Well, it would be an appetizer for you to begin to realize God is giving specific detail about future things that you can count on, that you can trust for your family, for yourself. And so I want to give you some quick applications before we, before we go eat uh, together. And you, you may not ag agree with my exact understanding of these, uh, this way of understanding it, and it would all these applications would still be true. So Christians, and this is where our church is, Christians sometimes differ about the minor details of what it will look like in the return of Christ, but we agree about the big things. And the original audience couldn't have missed this. Daniel couldn't have missed this. And you shouldn't be able to miss this. Let me give you these four practical applications that really kind of, you're going to see it's really one thing. God has a plan for Jews and Gentiles. And that's good because most of us are our Gentiles. God has a plan for Jews and Gentiles, and the plan is to bring in an everlasting righteousness. And God has not forgotten his people Israel. God is doing good things. He ended in the captivity. He ended Israel's penchant for idolatry, introduced a synagogue system, which, which became a pattern for the local church. The Old Testament canon was completed during that time. God was understood as a personal God. God says more than once he loves Daniel and four or five times he touched Daniel and God wants to touch you. And you, you need to understand him as a, a, personal, a personal God. But we, it requires patience in our life for us to allow God to do the things that he promised he would do. So the first application is God has a plan. He has a plan for Jews and Gentiles and that includes us to deal with evil and bring everlasting righteousness. Second, evil is real and must be resisted. We'll see this even more next week. Third, our trials are limited. God has a time span. Our trials are limited. 
but our bliss, our reward for the faithful is eternal. Our trials are temporary, but for the faithful, our reward is eternal. In the ages of eternity, we'll quickly recover from anything we've ever suffered on earth, no matter how bad it is. And fourth, God offers us his love through Christ. So have you noticed this? As we studied through the book of Daniel, there were hints and then broad um, introductions of Jesus and of his work in this Old Testament book. We were pointing out that Jesus is clearly in every chapter, and in some cases, very overtly. And this way, as you get to the end of Daniel, Jesus becomes more and more plain and clear. Listen, if you, if you didn't get anything else, track with me on this. There's a future where good wins and bad loses, and it has to do with your allegiance to Jesus who died for your sin. That's the one thing you want to remember. I'll say it all in this way. Uh, God offers his love through Christ. And let's say it all in one big idea. God has a precisely timed plan to bring eternal righteousness to heaven and earth, end the reign of evil forever, offer his love to humankind, and that plan is fulfilled in his son Jesus when we yield to him as king. Can I repeat that? God has a precisely timed plan to bring eternal righteousness to heaven and earth, to end the reign of evil forever, to offer his love to humankind, and that plan is fulfilled in his son, Jesus Christ, when we yield to him as king. Our daughter Heidi got married a number of years ago, and she moved over to Wisconsin on the other side of Lake Michigan. And I wasn't used to the children not being all in the house, and it was painful for me. And so one time I was preaching, and I was talking about my daughter Heidi, and how she was on the other side of Lake Michigan, and I didn't get to see her. She'd bring the kids over, and we'd visit and teach her to ride a bike. Then they'd go home, and our hearts would ache. It just seemed like we have a lot of heartache in our life, you know, when the kids go away. I mentioned that in church, and when I got done, a guy named Gary came up to me. And what, what you don't know about Gary is that Gary had a daughter whose name was Sarah, and Sarah was 12 when she went into a surgery, a, a minor surgery, and she died in surgery. And the doctors called them in after the surgery. You would think it'd be just a doctor reporting on how things went, what a recovery would be like. And he said, your daughter died. They took an oak tree and they planted it on the church property there. And that day that I said, there's a lake between me and my daughter, Gary came out and he shook my hand and he said, I wish there was just a lake between me and Sarah. Today, we have a beloved guest in our midst, our daughter, who we love so much. She lives on the West Coast, which is kind of a mixed blessing because we get to visit the Oregon coast from time to time. But we often miss her, and we miss the kids, and we miss her husband, Jesse, and we long to be together. And it just hurts. And then even sometimes in families, even in the best of families, things happen that if you just want to say it in a raw way, sin separates us, hurts, sins. You have it in your family, don't you? We do. So you may have a reunion, but you still have a little distance. I love this passage, even though I don't, even though it's probably difficult to explain. I love a passage that's telling me God is in control of everything. And one day, those of us who know the Lord are going to be all together and there won't be any sin separating us there. 
Can I get an amen from God's people? Amen. I wouldn't want to miss that for anything in the world. We want to, we want to, we want you to stay with us. We've prepared food today and playful things for children and adults alike. And uh, we want John Lemon, you, you know John, most of you do. Some of you that don't know, his, his son and granddaughter were in the baptistry there earlier. And John, one of our elders, and he wants to pronounce a blessing. And John, if you pray for our food too, we can just go right at it. And please don't go home. Go, go down. We, we moved everything indoors, the bounce houses and play things, I think, here. And then we have our, our food downstairs, and John's going to pronounce a blessing.